listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. I think last year on the other podcast that I host, so I have the Round Canada podcast as well, which is kind of a, it's sort of like more like a news show where I cover trending topics across Canada in the whole area of wildlife science, conservation, fishing, hunting, uh, all, all those types of wide-ranging stories. I remember covering a story about a controversy in the community of Vernon about their geese. And, and this, I think the city council had, had approved a cull of like a hundred geese or something like that. And so where's that at? It actually resurfaced not long ago. I, I saw a little blip on the news about it, that they were trying to bring it forward again. It made me chuckle. It really, truly did. Jeez. Now, are, were they talking about like lethal removal cull or were they talking about like the Stanley Park thing in Vancouver where they just no, want to like this, freeze the eggs? This Well, we have an egg addling program already up in the region that has been quite successful for many years now. But this one, I do believe it was looking at the lethal end of it. Hmm. Okay. To do an actual formal cull. Right. So is that um that doesn't go over well with part of the community and no <laughs> doesn't is it, go is over it like well a with a lot so it's not a 50 50 split like yes remove the geese and save the geese or is it 80 20 60 40. Uh, i'm gonna say it's a 60 40. lots okay. of people you you see lots of um lots of posts on the rant and raves and all those pieces that you know everybody's got their kids at the park everybody's going down to the beach but they got to walk through the goose poop and you know you you get a 50 50 takeout on that but as far as an actual lethal call goes it could go either way well okay mm -hmm. hmm. do you know how they were planning to do that like just like professionals would come in and it would trap be. or shoot I believe it would be a corral in order for either a vet or what other method. They did make reference that the meat would have been donated. So that route um, to me means something that's going to be a lethal, but not something that's going to be harmful to the human population. Right. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the, the whole goose issue in Stanley Park is kind of like reared its head again, you know, this spring. And uh, I, I follow it along on the other podcast because I just, I find this whole topic across Canada very fascinating with wildlife in the urban environment um, and, and what people love and what people hate. So in Stanley Park, there were all the incidents a few years ago of the coyotes biting people and those sorts of things and this huge uproar about the removal of, I think they removed like two coyotes or something, trapped them, um, save the coyote, coexist, all this sort of stuff. And then it's like the goose, it's like, get rid of them. We hate them. You know, and, and it's, I, I just find it. And then, you know, there's deer and then there's wild turkeys. And I just find the whole thing fascinating how, how there's this love hate relationship across the country with some fairly iconic species of wildlife it's just a I, I follow it along but so when the Vancouver one was was coming up again I asked a couple of um 
sort of waterfowl expert people what they thought about this egg addling thing. Mm -hmm. And they basically said it won't work. Mm -hmm. uh, if the habitat's there and they think it's a safe split, safe place, geese will always come back there. Um, one of the scientists actually said, if you really want to deter the geese from the places where people live, the parents need to witness human beings destroying the nests. They have to have a reason to be scared of people. Addling the eggs, they said, won't do it. Removing the geese, they just infill, so on and so on. So, um, but, but you said that the egg addling one was, was working in Vernon. I, I think it is. Um, you know, we've had some intimate involvement in the projects over the last few years of reportings and going out and trying different methods. And I do find personally, because you do addle and put them back, you mark and put them back, that the, the parents aren't laying more. If you take the eggs, they then will lay more. Right. So if they just, you know, continue to sit on the same nest for long periods of time, they just get up and walk away and say, okay, I guess they were duds and we're done for the year now. But by the time they realize that they're too far into the season to actually lay more. So I find it does work in some situations, but you're not going to fool them all. Hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, I just, uh, yeah, I wanted to bring that one up because um, <laughs> you're from Vernon and that was a Vernon yep. story a couple, a couple, it was about a year ago. So yep. um, it's probably been going on longer, longer than that um, by the time the news picks it up and, and I find it. But I appreciate that perspective. And, you know, if anything, if, you know, I, I just, I don't know what your thoughts are. Maybe you can tell me. But personally, wildlife living in human habitat for the most part, never works out for wildlife. And I do agree with keeping wildlife in wildlife habitat and humans in human habitat, mostly for the benefit of wildlife. Mm -hmm. And I just find if <clears throat> you have a situation where they're going to be removed, just do it the way nature treats things lower on the food chain and let people the geese, the deer, the whatever, so. You're missing a key piece to that though, and that's your human education. So yes, we are expanding our population. Yes, we are going into more of that nature land. We are expanding out into the areas that we are. The piece that you're missing on there though is there is a way that we can coexist for the most part. But we as humans need to change our own behaviors. We need to watch what are we doing with our garbage cans. We need to yeah. watch what are we doing with that groundfall. We need to watch about what are we providing as man-made habitat, as man-made food sources and man-made water sources. So a huge piece of what we do is education for exclusion. I will come onto somebody's property and I will walk around your property and say, look, you've got a cherry tree, you've got a pear tree. Are you picking up your ground falls? Because you can see the seeds on the ground. You can see where the raccoons have been. You can see where they're eating the koi out of the ponds. What are you doing to keep your yard as unattractive as possible to these animal species to limit that human wildlife conflict? So yeah. it's not just about keeping the wildlife to where they need to be. It's about what are we going to do in our own spaces to make sure that we're actually being a good neighbor. Yeah, and, and I think that that aligns with what I'm saying is that helps keep wildlife away from living on top of people. 
Um, and one of the reasons is, is we provide food, shelter, yep. and security. So, yeah, if you mitigate those things, then they're going to find that their natural habitats or habitats away from people are more desirable than being around people. And mm -hmm. they're less likely to, you know, get into trouble, you know, be killed, um, get run over by cars, all, all those sorts of things that we see. So, no, that's a really, really good point. Um, and I know Vernon has a lot of black bear problems, which is probably we do. where you're coming at from that we point. We do, out. but it's actually not the black bears in our area that are the biggest issues for us. Believe it or not, it's the snakes. So really? with our wildlife control, we get phone calls at all given hours and we could be brought out to go and remove either rattlesnakes, great basin gopher snakes, um, you know, garter snakes that are caught in deer netting because people go ahead and they drape their plants. They protect their garden from the deer. But in protecting from one species, they're actually creating a harmful environment for another. So now we're in there with our crews and we are actually physically cutting out the snakes from the deer netting. It is not a pleasant situation because you get these, you know, highly venomous reptiles that you're trying to free and trying to save, but yet, they are completely entangled. Snakes don't back out of things. So all they do is entangle a lot more. So yeah, it's wow. it's not always the big critters that you have to think about. It's those little ground crawlers that, that don't get into anything. Wow. Mm -hmm. I have never, never run across the topic of urban snake <laughs> before. Yep. So I'm I'm sure if you lived in Arizona or maybe other parts of the world, Australia probably, you know, mm -hmm. has, has its, its uh, snake issues, but in Canada, I've never heard of the urban snake, yeah, urban snake, human, snake, human conflict. Yeah. <laughs> really. We get four to six complaints, usually every season. Um, usually the majority of them are rattlesnakes. Usually I'm going to say 90% of them end up unharmed. Um, there's usually one or two that, that do get some degree of harm because they have just gotten themselves so entangled in that netting that it actually ends up cutting into their scales. And we do have an amazing vet in town that does volunteer their services, which does include helping these guys as well, um, that they will help us sew up some wounds and make sure that they're all good to go. And then they do get released back out. So. Well, There's cool. a lot of happy endings out there for some of these. Very guys. cool. Very yeah. cool. Wow. No, that was that was worth learning about <laughs> the snakes. Never would have thought of that. So, we yeah. don't we don't have too many here in the East Kootenays. Just a few garter snakes, and mm -hmm. and that's about it. So they don't get into trouble, as far as I know. Hey, everybody! It's Mark Hall, your host, and it's Curtis Hall, the co-host. The Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by the community-minded Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, BC. Get the perfect off-road truck to take you on your adventures and take your adventures to the next level with Alpine Toyota. They are proud to offer a wide selection of trucks, tires, and services that are sure to meet your needs. Plus, they're dedicated to giving back to the community by supporting us here at the Hunter Conservationist, organizations like Ducks Unlimited Canada, and therefore conservation. With Alpine Toyota, you can drive away with both a great vehicle and the peace of mind knowing you're making a difference. As cool. always, thanks to the folks at Alpine. Yes, thank you. 
Holly Wise, welcome to the Hunter Conservationist podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, this is this is going to be great. So Holly, you are the Vice President and Communications Chair of the BC Trappers Association. Mm-hmm. Yes, I am. Awesome. British Columbia's oldest conservation organization. It's 76 years now. Uh, if my math is correct, yes. 70, yeah. 78? I don't know. Don't quote me on, on the age yeah, on it. I think, it's, it's up there. <laughs> yeah, I think the 75 anniversary was a couple of years ago. It was ago, a couple so, years yeah, ago. Yeah, so... Yeah, I'm, I'm not too good with numbers myself, but uh, the, uh, the point is uh, BC's oldest um, conservation organization, which is, um, which is pretty cool. Um, you know, I think that'd be a great story to, to run down one day that sort of the, the genesis or the history of why, you know, the, an organization had to come together, you know, three quarters of a century ago. So that's, that would be a, that'd be a whole whole learning experience in itself. Now, you recently became the BC Trappers Association's first certified trapping instructor for a woman in BC. Yes, I did. Yeah, that's congratulations on that. Thank that's, you. That is awesome. So tell us about your journey in getting there and 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 the other roles that you are involved in uh, as an instructor in the province, but start us out with the trapping one. How how did you get to today? Well, this one was a really natural progression for me. So my dad, when they moved up here from the coast, here being Vernon, of course, from the coast back in the early 70s, my dad was really heavily into trapping, was you know able to purchase a trap line here and ran it consistently so when i was growing up early 80s you know hanging out with dad wanting to do as much as possible with him he would never let me touch a knife so i very quickly became the sawdust princess now when you when you do some processing on animals you the really greasy ones you have to have the sawdust so it becomes an art when do you put the sawdust on when do you do it so that's really was my first taste of anything And as I got older, you know, I was able to touch knives and really help and support him on his journey on what he was doing with the trapping. And then once I finally hit, you know, 15 years old, I was able to take my trapping license. And as soon as I took my trapping license, I actually was my dad's only employee for his wildlife control. So I was actually working in urban wildlife control, doing a lot of catch and release, doing a lot of the really weird complaints and pulling raccoons out of attics and all that kind of fun stuff that that we did. It went along for me until the early 2000s when I was actually able to buy my own trap line. So then I really took it to the next step of doing more of the winter trapping. What does it look like to do habitat management and get all those pieces out? But along the way, still helping with dad. And dad had been an instructor for the BC Trappers Association for, I'm going to say, decades on this one. And so for me, it was nothing uncommon to go and help with his courses and see what everything was going on and be there for him if he needed the support during his courses. And just to kind of see what that transition was going to be like. I always knew that I wanted to be an instructor teaching and having that voice to really 
share that information with up and comers that are super excited is something that really makes me feel whole. So having the opportunity to go into the mentorship program with the BC Trappers Association and actually take it to the next step and be a full fledged instructor was absolutely huge for me. And I always laugh because I went through three degrees and a master's and I didn't get the outcry of support and cheering from my family as I did when I got this certification. So <laughs> that gives you an idea of where this one sits in in our world. So it's pretty awesome. That's that's funny. Maybe, maybe your family, um, maybe they think becoming a, a trapping instructor was harder than, than I don't know. passing a thesis <laughs> defense or something. I don't know, but you know, they're they're all challenging in their own ways. But I think this is the one. This had a lot riding on it for me, because this to me was how can I share all the information that I've gathered over the last 40 years and really put it into a meaningful method that is really supportive of the really solid education piece that the BC Trappers Association has built, but really be able to add my own flair of this is my lived experience. This is what I do. This is what I eat and breathe. And how do I share that along in a way that the students are excited to come, they're excited to take it on, and they're excited to take the next steps themselves and, you know, go from being a, a new trapper to coming and seeing me, you know, 20 years down the line and saying, hey, look what I'm still doing. And that's what I would like to see. Wow. I, I'm always so inspired by someone like yourself that has so much passion to to teach and and to pass that on mm -hmm. like you, you know you're you're at a point you know in your life you bought your own trap line and and you probably could have just said that this is this is me time um i'm gonna go out and grow professionally myself uh improve my skills enjoy my time in the outdoors trapping learning about wildlife just you know being in nature and the world can just leave me alone, right? Like that's that's so easy. And I, I think a lot of people want that, whether it's trapping, hunting, fishing, they just kind of want the world to leave them alone because that's their that's their place. What what do you what's in your heart that makes passing something on, passing the knowledge and skills to others so important to you? It's, I don't want to call it an art form, but it is a tradition that is eventually going to die. And if we don't have the group of passionate instructors that we have, I'm one of 11. If we didn't have that, if we didn't have the BCTA pushing, we would actually lose this. And when I say we would lose it is we would lose interest, we would lose membership, we would lose the, the up and comers, and eventually it would just fade into nothing. I don't ever wanna see that happen. I wanna be able to say, no, I did absolutely everything I could to keep not only the organization going, but the craft, the art, all of it. I wanna be able to say I had a part of that. So that's no, why I, this is, that's I, I, why this is great. No, I, I, uh, I, I hear you. Cause I mean, I, I feel the same way about hunting, um, mm -hmm. and, and trapping. I'm just, you know, I'm quite, quite new at it, but, yeah. but I understand that, you know, like it's a lifestyle, Yep. you know, what, what we do, it's a way of defining who we are as people. And, and it's not just something that most of us, um, just pick up and put down 
and trapping season's over. Oh, so I'm going to go golfing. You know, like we're not <laughs> that group of people. No. And and we know what a wonderful lifestyle it, it, it is being actively involved in the outdoors and interacting with wildlife and 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 wanting wanting to give that encouragement skills knowledge and pass on that passion to somebody you know that it's there in them and they're showing the the signs of going you're like a you're like a young me kind of thing right i i totally get it that is so so cool and so rare it is it is. And, you know, like I said, if it wasn't for the group of instructors that we have, and of course, I've been involved with this organization for many, many, many years. The entire body, the senior body of this group have watched me grow up. They've watched me since I was a toddler coming up in the ranks. So for me, it's it's pretty cool to be able to say, yeah, I've I've gotten to this place where I am respected by my colleagues. I'm respected by those coming into the organization and that I do have a voice at some pretty cool tables. And, you know, that the I don't want to say that being a woman, what I do is unique because it's not. There is a huge group of women trappers who have really paved the way to be able to have me sitting in this conversation or at the table or having those conversations. And I give hard credit to them for really breaking down those initial barriers. What I would love to see is I would love to see more women instructors. I would love to see more of the women that are so incredibly passionate get involved as well. We have a different perspective on things. We have a different way that we need to do things. We don't have the same body mechanics as men. So for us, it things are a little bit different. And I think having a different perspective is really valuable when you're when you're having these courses. No, I um I I, compl- I completely agree. Uh I think that's part of, you know, what my hope for you in the future, being an instructor, that that is going to, you know, op- open some doors for for other women in the field as well. Whether it's to pursue um, instructors uh, or or mentors, or to actually get in get involved in trapping, to kind of you know that visibility needs to be there. Those role models need need to be there, and you know, especially for younger kids. Um, to, you know, to, to see that. And, um, no, I think it's, I think it's, it's, it's great. Um, I'm really, you know, being a BC resident, I'm, I'm just really, I think it's a great thing for trapping to, you know, that you had that dedication to go through and, and to become, uh, an instructor. Now, before the show, you were telling us about like some of the other things that you're involved in, not just um, uh, tr- becoming a trapping instructor, but tell us about other areas that you're so doing these similar things. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I'm just going to quote that right now. So my dad <laughs> does the instructors for the BC Trappers Association. He was also um, a core hunter examiner um, instructor, and he also did the PAL. Now, while I have zero intention on doing PAL because my 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 plate's fairly full. Um, I am an instructor for the BC Wildlife Federation as well. I do teach the hunting program. Um, Again, it gives me an opportunity to get those young kids, get them engaged, get them excited about something and get them out into the field. And for me, again, 
that is absolutely huge. Another piece that I do for BC Wildlife Federation is I actually do the trapping instruction at their Becoming an Outdoors Woman program when it's held in Lake Country. I'm just about to do, I want to say, my fourth or fifth session with them coming up in June. So that's one that really excites me because it is all women. We get really good response from the groups and I learn as much from them as they do from me. So whereas I'm coming out with the beaver and we're doing some skinning and we're doing some some fur prep, I'm also making sure that we're talking about exclusion, we're talking about protection, we're talking about habitat management, and we're talking around regulations as well. So really giving them the high level, this is what it's all about, this is kind of what you would learn and, you know, feel free to come and register and join us and come have a class with us. So it seems like uh, when the whole COVID lockdown thing sort of went away and these these uh, activities, courses, workshops, all of those sort of things started becoming back to, to being nor- normal, that that Becoming an Outdoors Woman course with the BC Wildlife Federation exploded in the province. Uh, and the numbers of courses the numbers of participants, how quickly they fill up. Um, and and I just see like a huge part of their social media marketing is around that course now. And and you've you've done four of them now? I've done four so far, yeah. So, and that's just in the last couple of years? That's just in, in the, the last area? five years in, usually it's Kelowna Lake Country. Okay, okay. Wow. Um, are are you do you just come in for like that one part of the workshop or are you part and parcel to all of the other things that I that usually go in the just workshop? come in for the one, but I do hang out. I do go and see there's a, a couple of the gals that we've been doing it since pretty much the beginning. So we go and we have our moments together and, you know, keep our collegial aspect alive. But I do get to go and see some of the other workshops, which is kind of cool. There's some things in my world that I just absolutely don't know how to do. One of those is cast a fly. So I go and I watch from the sidelines and, you know, see what see what they do. Um, the The things I've learned so far when it comes to that is I can catch trees and I know how to tip a canoe. So that's about as far as my fly tying experience goes. So, you know, it's it's fun for me to be able to go and watch some of those seminars as well. I usually do three to four seminars over the weekend, at least try to get one per day. So that way, anybody who wants to have the opportunity to come and do some, some trapping related stuff can um, and that nobody really feels left out. And every single seminar I do is sold out and full every single time that I'm there. So Wow, that's so the the demand for fur handling trapping yeah. is is there there's yeah there's a there's a great interest in that um tell us tell us a little bit about the demographic of women that are in that course and and that come to see you like are we talking like people that have grown up in in more urban environments like Kelowna's a big city i would call it a big a big city myself um like what young so the, last, older. the last one I did had anybody, I believe my youngest was about 19 and my oldest was almost in her 70s. And oh, yeah. all walks of life I had, you know, from big city, from urban, you know, urban jungles down in Vancouver and Victoria, all the way through to the up north that could have easily shown me up on what I was doing. 
So it's it's great. Um, everybody gets in, everybody gets hands on, everybody has their turn with the knives and we just have a good time of it. And for me, it's about watching the group laugh and the puns and everything coming out there. It's it's so much fun. No, that would be that would be exciting. I find I find when guys get together, like in those those workshops and stuff, like they're all so tense and yeah. and and quiet and stuff. And it's like there there isn't a lot of like you know kind of like funness. And and I think I think there's kind of like the male ego thing is sort of like if you goof up skin in the squirrel or whatever, it's like you're less of a man or whatever. And and uh, I I just kind of sort of like geez like lighten up everybody and like have some fun and you know and 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 sort of thing where I my experiences of being around like especially in the outdoors women they do tend to be a lot actually a lot more fun we put on a great show so prime example I was doing all the demos at our interior sportsman show back in April in Kelowna um I was pulling coyotes, I pulled bobcat, I did two beavers all over the course of the weekend. I was completely spent by the end of the weekend. Any single possible thing that could have gone wrong did. And I just ran with it. I just had a great time with it. I engaged the crowds in it. We were all laughing. Um, you know, there's there's just something about having those those extra comedic relief pieces and not being afraid to say it. Yeah, and and not be competitive, I guess. Exactly. No, no egos. No, that's nope. great. Absolutely not. And I'm the first one to apologize when you come into the area. Sorry, guys. No idea how this is going to turn out. I love to pull the I'm new card because then it gets everybody off my back, and you know, just see what happens. Oh, cool, cool. That's that's a good one. <laughs> that's yep. That's good. This is this is my first workshop, so yeah, I'm new. Know. Although <laughs> anybody who came to the previous years would know that I'm not. But right, you know, right. Now, the in the becoming the outdoor woman workshop, um, and you you do this segment. This isn't like the full blown trapping course. No. Like this is like a. Um, is this like giving giving them sort of a familiarization of what it is to see if that's a path that they might want to choose that's, and then they would, okay. That's exactly it. So what we do is through your entire trapping course, if you take the actual formal course, skinning a beaver is a mandatory part of that course. You are going to be going through that. That's the piece that I bring into the classes. So I'll bring a beaver with me. I might bring a live trap with me. I bring some of our signage with me. I bring like the disease books, um, the disease that wildlife have, and really just share what a glimpse of the kind of information and the kind of pieces that you're going to be working with. So then everybody will glove up. Everybody has an opportunity and they have the opportunity to say no because it's not the actual formal class. Um, some people just want to watch. Some people want to intently watch and some people want to get right up to their elbows and everything. And I welcome all walks to come in and be part of it. You know, I've had multiple people come back to me over the years and say, I took the trapping course because of this. And that's something that feels really good because now it's 
it's starting to come full circle. You're starting to see more and more people get a little taste of it. We're not bunny killers. No matter what anybody tries to paint us as, you know, we're out there working on your conservation. We're the ones that are out there working on the ecology. We're the ones making sure that habitat management exists. We can tell you what our count populations are in any of our areas. And I think it's when you start to shift that perspective that you really start to make the impact. And doing courses like this are a huge part of that because then they see, hey, no, we're not what the the media paints us out to be. We're actually a decent group of humans that, you know, just happen to have a really great passion for something. That's a really good that's a really good perspective like that. It, it's bringing, yeah, so, so the whole um, moniker of a trapper that's, that's in, in the media and in the band, the trapping campaigns and, you know, and all this stuff that, you know, that we always see out, out there, it, it takes the humans out of it. It takes neighbor to neighbor and community members and, and uh, hunting is the same way. It's sort of like, you know, one of the things you know we've advocated to people is one of the best ways that you can make a difference in hunting is just simply with your uh your friends and family and and if they don't hunt but they're like hey i know so and so who does and is a good person and has a family and we work together in the same office and and um to use that opportunity to connect um trapping to those people with a real person that they'll take away uh, and remember what a great person that was that yeah. that is a has has a huge impact i think on on um on how people would view those stories when they when they would see them they'd be like no that's not really how i remember holly from the workshop and so on and so on so yeah i like that and, that's that's and cool. that's you know, the my eyes have really, truly been opened with that over the last, you know, few weeks that I appreciate this is not what everybody does. Mm. And I appreciate that there is a lot of different perspectives out there. But I also appreciate the moments where people actually come as a human and ask some really intelligent questions and allow for some intelligent dialogue because we don't get that now. We're in an age with the keyboard warriors and how that goes sideways so quickly that it becomes a blame. It becomes something that is totally different from what it is. So any opportunity I have to be able to sit down and talk and change a perspective, I'm going to take it. And, you know, we've got a saying that, that we use all the time is if you ever get bored, just go find a trap or we'll talk forever. <laughs> yeah, that's... Yeah, no, knowing knowing that to be true, you drop off some furs at the uh, at the at the uh, fur buyer intake, and it's like you're there for three hours. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's yeah. that's true. Can can you think of um can you think of a particular conversation like where somebody kind of had one of those really good questions that opened up? Because I love that myself. Because some those people, if they're not in these circles or growing up in this lifestyle, they'll ask, like you said, some really good questions. And you're just like, oh, I've never, that's interesting. Like, you, you know, trappers don't ask trappers those questions and hunters don't ask hunters those questions. But uh, can you I think find, 
I find those questions are usually around ethics, where they're okay. actually questioning what my ethics and my morals are for why I do what I do. And it's usually trailed in there with a, do you feel like a murderer kind of question? Gotcha. And yeah. I love having those questions because no, come and sit and have a talk with me. Because I'll tell you exactly what harvest management truly means. And what we are replacing is that winter damage where the animals are starving, where they are in poor condition, where they are going through those pieces and they are going to be naturally, uh, they are naturally going to die. And what we are doing is we are preventing the stress, the harm, that mental, you know, I couldn't imagine what it would be like to be outside in the bush at minus 30 and all of a sudden my food sources are gone and now I'm just wandering around starving. That's not something that I could imagine. And so it, having those conversations, they go, hmm. And it starts to shift it from, you know, we're not out there to decimate an entire land of animals because that's not what we're about. We want to make sure that our lines prosper and that we see the critters out there. And I watch for the squirrels and the bobcats and the coyotes and want to see them flourish on my line. What I don't want to see is I don't want to see an animal suffering. I don't want to see somebody, I don't want one that's running sick with mange. I don't want to see anything that's got bones sticking out and that is in a really poor state. So having proper harvest management actually will prevent that. It prevents to pull some of that disease out. It actually will help with your populations from being overpopulated. That allows more food source around. So there's a lot more pieces to it than just, you know, going out and setting something and catching something because you have it on your trap line. There's there's yeah. a lot more work behind it. The the muskrat is a really good example of what you just talked about, right? Like it's, they have the ability to like lots of rodents <laughs> um, to multiply on top of multiplying on top of multiplying, uh, you know, the wetlands fill up with, with muskrats and then they get, it's the tularemia disease, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And then it's like 90% of the population all die from this, this disease. And it's this boomer, boomer bus cycle. And even from the perspective of waterfowl habitat in the wetlands, these boom and bus cycles in muskrats can, can make for good and bad duck habitat as well, because they're like little farmers that are keeping things open and, when they have a have a crash and die, then the the wetlands grow over and there's less duck duck habitat, and so farmer or trappers have the ability to kind of like level that out. Yep, it's it's no. incredible on on what we can assist with as far as you know management that's out there, because we're not just looking at one system; we're looking at all the systems. I call it the squirrel effect. I go out in the wintertime and I'm watching my squirrels and I know all the trappers are shaking their heads right now, but I watch for the squirrels. I watch for the midden piles. That's going to help predict for me in the fall. What's my winter going to be like based on what those midden piles are. And they're all shaking their heads right now that I'm even saying it, but that's how I watch what I do. So I watch for them. I want to see them running. I want to hear them chirping, but if you don't have proper management of your squirrels, it's totally unreliable. Right. 
Right. Because then they <clears> could be, you know, harvesting for an overpopulation and then not have that population come winter because they haven't harvested enough. So right. there's yeah, all that's, those. I started on squirrels my the first winter. That's That's all I did. And I can say now I am so in tune with squirrels, mm-hmm. even if I'm not trapping so this winter on the trap line again it was like i didn't i didn't trap them this this winter but my whole entire like eye was the same thing it's like where are they where are the middens what are they doing because i learned my first winter that when i found a successful squirrel midden and a, a lot of activity um the squirrels are competing you know in those middens and you know um, there's, there's more than one around. And so the Martin also knows, and, uh, I had one really successful catch one time. And I think I had several squirrels on poles and yep. the Martin got them all. <laughs> I was like, your poles weren't high enough off the ground or your snares weren't long enough. No, he just, that out there. <laughs> I, I had, I had the squirrels, they were hanging. And he just got up on the pole and went around and was just, just yarded them all off, like yanked them off and away he went with them. There's a finesse to that to make sure you don't lose your fur. You got to watch your length of your, your, uh, wire that you're using. You don't want them too long to touch the ground, but you want to make sure that they're not short enough that they can't just grab and pull up. Yeah, no, that's, they, they weren't reaching the ground. He was definitely going onto the pole and then, and then grabbing the wire and lifting the lifting the squirrel up and then of course it's a thin wire then he just yanks it off the snaps it off the pole and the way he went so but but there's this whole this whole dynamic that you're that you're seeing out there and and you know I've said it myself many times it's not until you're a trapper or a hunter that you don't actually really see wildlife you don't really see these things at play and if nothing else uh, that just enhances my time out there in in seeing the world for what it really is out there, but having to see it through the eyes of a trapper or a hunter is, is even more special. I absolutely couldn't agree more. Do you get do you get questions from like those genuine questions from folks about the traps themselves? Yes. Is there I think I don't know what your thoughts are, but we seem to be burdened by kind of like the u.s sometimes because they still allow footholds on martins some states still allow the the um the the tooth foothold traps and Mm -hmm. stuff and so what what do people ask you about the traps they always ask if we have jaws on them to start with and i tell them no that's old we don't have any of those anymore um any of the courses, I don't know who taught your course that you went through, but any of the courses with any of our instructors will actually put our hand into a foothold. Now, keep in mind, I like to pull the I'm new card again yet, so I haven't done it myself yet. One of these days, I'll purposely catch myself. Um, but the traps are designed to hold, and a very good, tested, FIC-supported trap is actually designed to hold and not break skins. So that's the number one piece that we do there. Um, I talk about trapping methods. So using your footholds, there are quite a few killing sets that we do use. It is one of the most popular sets as far as style of set that's used in BC. But that doesn't mean that it's going to be this really nasty, 
you know, ugly jawed trap. Um, there's so many different methods as like conibears are a great example or any snaring. Um, but we do it all to standards. Everything as far as like snaring, for an example, we have breakaway systems that go on there. So if we have an incidental catch that isn't what we're supposed to be catching, they do have an opportunity. Like let's say there's a snare set out and a moose walks through it, catches it on its foot. The moose can easily just kick it off. Um, no harm, no foul. We go and pick up our broken, our broken equipment and, you know, build a new snare and continue on with life. But we know that that moose was not caught. And we also get to know then that, hey, there's moose in our area. Let's celebrate that we're starting to see them again. So. No, that's, that's cool. No, that's another, I think another good one to, to connect with people around that trap question, because it's definitely not portrayed truthfully. 100%. In the media around these inflammatory stories that that come out from time time to time, so no, that's um that that's that's very good that those, I think, are two key questions that that novices pick up on and, and ask mm -hmm. you about. So, very cool. The, the most simplest killing trap that I explained to everybody is a mouse trap. Yes. Ninety nine percent of households have a mouse trap in it, and you're telling me what I do should be banned. <laughs> let's let's have some conversation about that. So what you're telling me then is it's not the method, it's the species that you care about. And to me, a, a species is a species is a species. So this is where I come back at my argument with them going, okay, well, you're you're setting a killing trap for a mouse or a rat or however you see it for a population control in your yard, your house, your backyard, this is no different. I'm just doing population control at a little bit of a larger scale with a little bit of a different equipment to make sure that we don't have an overpopulation somewhere else. And and the other key thing around the mouse trap is they're designed for instantaneous kills. Mm -hmm. Like back of the head yep. or top, top of the head, like the distance, the size, everything has been matched to a mouse and the engineers know exactly where that bar is going to strike with how much force. And so even if somebody's like, this is a health hazard in my home, it's a nuisance, yada, yada, yada. And, and you have to make those choices to get rid of them. You're still doing it with a humane instantaneous yeah. death. So, you know, it's, it's the same mindset with trappers as well when they're using the killing sets, right? It's like darn rights. This is going to exactly. be instantaneous. And everything is species specific. Look in the back of the hunting regs. We've got a little teeny tiny 12 page section on trapping in there. It has all of our certified traps for those species. And just as you explained with the mouse trap, with the rotating jaw, with the instant kill, where the kill is going to hit, there's one for beaver. So if you get the conibear in there, exact same way, exact same method, exact same style. The only difference is it isn't set on a little piece of wood inside your house. It's set up differently and that's where the skills of a trapper come into play. Because yeah. it is a tool, it is something dangerous, it is something that we can catch ourselves, our, our fingers in, or worse. And for us, it's, it's a matter of learning how to set properly. And yeah. that's the only difference. Yeah, I love, 
I love those opportunities when you can bring something from their world and your world together and they can kind of go, oh, okay, no, I, I guess it's the same thing or it's no different or I, I see where you're coming from. Those are, mm -hmm. those are great little uh, moments that make you smile inside. <laughs> Gives you a giggle for sure. Now, we'll shift gears here a little bit. Yeah. From, from this idea of inspiring and recruiting people into trapping um, to carry on, um, enjoy this lifestyle that's been, you know, put here by the generations before us. What are some of the, what are some of the main challenges and barriers that you see for folks right now? That, that may be interested in getting into trapping? I think for the most part, I'm learning that people don't understand, number one, how to access. And the other piece is what the BC Trappers Association can do for them beyond just the course. Um, a challenge that we have is, as many organizations do, it's member retention. So when you come and you get your trapping course and you join us and you go through a really intense three-day course, you get your one-year membership, you get your magazines, but then what? How do we keep people beyond that one year coming back to the organization? So the BCTA has put together some really great pieces that go with it. So we have what are called locals. Every region has them all across the province. They're just a group of like-minded trappers that get together, you know, call it the mini club of the bigger club, if you will. And we do shows. We do, you know, potlucks are huge. Food's huge with trappers. For some reason, we all just bring something. But we get together and we have those opportunities and we bring in the guest speakers and we bring in the regional biology man biologist managers and we bring in our conservation officers and we have all these presentations and just really, in really great engagement that a lot of the new members miss. So part of the work that we've done with myself and our membership committee, who is another um, gentleman in within our, our leadership group, who sits on our board out of region three um, is really making sure those new members get connected in because there's a lot of groups in there that are being missed, you know, as a new, as a new trapper. So yeah, you've got your license. Now what? Well, come and join us. We've got mentorship programs. You can come out on the line with us. There's a lot of us that are not even going to hesitate to put a new trapper in the truck with us. I've got sections of, of my trap line that I allow for, you know, you want to go try it for a year, come and try it for a year. I'll hook you up with a little area. You can go and learn and see what you come up with. Right. And it's, right, it's okay. those opportunities to be able to continue the membership. And I think that was a big piece that was missing is how do we keep people engaged beyond that initial course? Yeah, no, I can, I can definitely relate to that one because it's, <clears throat> you know, it's like you've, you've got this course, you got this certificate, which I think in, in anything that we do in life, the certificate generally means that you've demonstrated some things that allow you to now start learning. Yeah. But where do and you developing start? those skills? So, so the the accessing the community and becoming part of a community uh, is what you're saying is making sure that people you know are are brought into the trapping community. They they know about that, and then obviously having access to go out and start practicing you know on the land somewhere and and that's um that that's huge. 
That's huge. Now, I know there's, I, I know that's how I got started is I was given the opportunity to, um, <clears throat> become an assistant on a registered trapper's trap line and kind of go out and start to kind of tinker around and, and learn myself and, you know, um, had somebody I can bounce ideas off and learn things and, and whatnot. And, and, uh, there's also a question I have for you in the space that's available in this province to grow our trappers because there seems to be places around the province, and I know the Kootenays is one of them, uh, where there seems to be a tremendous amount of vacant trap lines. And that's certainly from the BC Trappers Association perspective has got to be a forward-looking concern if you're seeing an increase in demand and increasing um, you know awareness and interest in in the course and becoming trappers is there's places for them out there but they're not being made available and what what are your thoughts around around the vacant trap lines and and what is the situation like across other regions of the province do you like do you know the biggest problem that we've had traditionally is data it's a tough call to be able to say that they have been truly vacant and underutilized. Um, you know, we are set out by what the requirements are of a trap line to be able to continue. And that's our dollar value and or hide value that comes off. Um, but until this past two years, we've had some real big challenges being able to say this line is delinquent. Um, and that was because of our reporting style. So as a trapper, we would go, we would harvest everything. And if the, the, if, if the auction looked like it was going to be down, we would hold everything for a year and then push it out to auction. We would really cater to, oh, we know that, you know, Italy and, and Germany is coming for this one. So we want to make sure that we get all the coyotes out to this one, but maybe we'll hold back a couple furs. Um, so the challenge for us is, our numbers were never in the actual year that we actually harvested in. Now the province has actually changed that. So we have a very accurate reporting system now that is now under play, which is our actual annual harvest reporting. It's linked to everything. So if you have a trap line and you have a trapper's number, you are required to do this online reporting system and you're reporting species location, you're reporting trap line number that it came off of and all the information that's on there, but it's actually mandatory. Without putting that in, we can't buy our hunting license. We can't get our LEHs. We cannot get, you know, even our fishing license because the systems are all linked together. So, I think we're going to see some really good data coming out here in the next year or so that I'm hopeful is going to open up a few more of those lines that really aren't being used. But okay. then it becomes a challenge and I've had these conversations with ministry before is it becomes the challenge of how do how do they get sold what how do we determine a value and what is that next piece going to be. I'm just really hopeful that when we cross that point that it's going to be something that's meaningful and and actually going to be beneficial to the trappers in the province. So do you think that a number of the trap lines that we would call vacant or delinquent are are registered lines that just may or may not have 
much or any trapping activity happening on them or are there lines that are just simply not registered to anybody they've turned them back they've been taken away and they're just sitting there without a government issued license on that all line. lines are registered to someone so that's okay. that's our key piece there okay whether that that person is actually running them and submitting fur is a whole other story and that's what makes them vacant um the fact that they are registered that somebody does own them but they are 100 percent not being trapped and there are quite a few in the province um, and there are more pockets than others that are not being used and it is something that is a very big highlight on on the bcta's radar because we would like to see you know, proper utilization, proper harvest. We want to see some of these lines go out and be available and have the opportunity for some new trappers or senior trappers that maybe have never owned a line be able to have that opportunity to get one. Right. One of the ideas I've always thought of, I don't know if you guys have talked about this on the board, is if the BCTA itself could get lines and then run them as i don't know whether they would be like teaching teaching lines uh they could be like um you know maybe i would put in for like i would do for my limited entry hunting permits i would apply to get you know one quarter of the bca's trap line in you know the kootenai region for this year and then if i was successful i'm like ooh, i got a i drew a trapping <laughs> or whatever we would call it drew a trapping <laughs> sounds like i just learned english but you, you know it's it's like that could that could add a whole new level of like anticipation of of opportunity uh, and excitement and stuff to for people to see some of those opportunities but i i really like the idea of a teaching line and if if the BCAT, BCTA couldn't, you know, cut, let's say, like make an arrangement with the government to get some lines directly transferred over to the association, could you ever be in a position where a trapper's like, my days are done, no one in the family's taking over, but I'm going to will this to the BCTA for perpetuity? So we've got two really cool things that are going for us right now. Number one, we have a very forward thinking board and we started to really see the shift under Tim Keeley and as president. Now we're going to continue that on under Glenn Cartwright. So the beautiful thing about this is we are actually looking at the semantics now on what is it going to take for the BCTA to own a trap line. Um, the challenge that we have right now is the way the wording goes, they cannot be owned by a corporation or a business. So now we're looking at what are those extra pieces going to be? There's a lot of logistics around it, but it is one of our high priority items. We want to be able to have somewhere that we can take people out for longer term, for having that support and really being able to say, look, we've got a line let's put it to use how are we going to use that now as far as how it's going to get divvied up if it what that looks like i have no idea yet right now we're still in such the infancy it has gone through our board we are looking into it further so i'm quite excited to see where that's going to go now the other half of your comment on there was we've got a bequest 
already set up as far as what what our BC Trappers Association has. Now, the challenge that we have is with the trap lines, again, we can't name it to a business. It has to be to a person. So there is always opportunity that, you know, you could put it in trust with somebody. But again, the semantics around that and the logistics is, is quite huge. There aren't really a lot that go without being passed down, which I think is the biggest part, which for me says that we are now multi-generational. And okay. that's something that I absolutely adore. Like my dad, when he ever goes, his lines will come to me. Mine will be amalgamated with his. It'll go to my kids. And hopefully they will take it forward with their children when they get to that point um, that will be able to see that longevity go through. Right. And so the more of that we see, I think it's it's going to be great. But for now, we're at least moving in the right direction. We've got the right key players now at the table, and we're really looking into other opportunities that we can have as an organization to mm. continue moving forward. Mm. It, it almost sounds like part of that could be solved by some changes to the Wildlife Act, which are not the easiest things in the world to do, but I know the Guide Outfitters I'm gonna be Association... That guy. I'm going to be that guy and stop you right there. As okay. much as I want to see the changes happen to open it up to a broader lens, I don't want to open an entire broad lens for one organization that could essentially bite us in the ass later. Yeah, yeah, I know I know what you mean, yeah. So it's yeah. it's a 50-50 on this. I mean, yeah. if we're able to, you know, we've even got members that are willing to purchase and then make up an agreement for X number of years, can be renewed, it goes over to the BCTA for use. That something like that even would be awesome. Um, but again, we just we gotta watch the semantics and the legalities and where yeah, this is all gonna we, go. We've seen that I kind of um make a big deal out of it, but we've got an organization, a non profit charity on the coast that has raised funds to buy guide outfitting territories and proclaimed they're doing it in order to stop hunting, um, which yeah. is actually a violation of the Wildlife Act. But anyways, um, so I see what you're saying is mm -hmm. if, if the language was to change so that let's just say it was something like a nonprofit society could own, mm -hmm. be a registered trap line holder, then the ban the trapping society of British Columbia <laughs> could, could Absolutely. apply. Absolutely. Um, You're opening all sorts of doors, but the biggest catch that we have is to own a, a registered trap line, you have to be, you had to have gone through the, the BC Trappers education. Yeah. So now that means that we have people that are coming through and participating to the extent that you need to in that course with the sole purpose of eliminating something for us in the future yeah that 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 is that is pretty weird well we'll we'll get the yeah. wildlife act changed so that it just says that the bc trappers association right? <laughs> can hold a registered trap line for the purposes of promoting training yeah, and sure. education yeah there we go right See? so okay. i'll i'll know how we word it awesome because you said it we're gonna do it <laughs> yeah of course of course now just to kind of round things out here what are some other priorities for the future of trapping um, that you see in the horizon? British Columbia, Canada, whatever lens that you want to put it on. What are 
what are the big ticket things that need, need to happen, need to change, need to be a focus? Oh, why are you going to do this to me at the end? Um, <laughs> I think for me is really making sure that the BC Trappers Association is able to stay at the tables. And when I mean stay at the tables, I mean stay in the limelight with ministry, stay with forestry, have those conversations. Um, we are an industry, we're a commercial industry, and we need to maintain, if not enhance, those pieces of information that we're bringing forward. And I, I think about all those changes that they've had to regulations that have been made at such a higher level without involving the on the ground people and without involving who it's actually going to affect. And it's had such an impact on our groups that we just want to be involved from the start. And we want to make sure that we're at the tables and having those conversations. So whether it's a regulation change, whether it's a change in forestry practices, anything along those lines, oil and gas industry, what is it going to look like when, you know, the next line comes pushing, pushing through our trap lines? We want to be involved in that. But there's even some bigger pieces now that we're, we're also working through, and that's, you know, post-wildfire management. How is that going to affect, especially when you get those big no hunting zones and trying to explain to the hunters that we're going up to trap still because we are commercial industry. We're not recreational. Yeah. So it's <clears throat> it's a lot of, of different little pieces, but it's involvement and it's engagement right from the start instead of bringing us in so far later on that we're spending a ton of time pulling data, pulling you know research that's been done to try to prove our case when it could have easily started with us at the table from the beginning. Gotcha. Yeah. So a priority is just keeping people at those tables, fully informed, engaged in front of people so that you're the first people that decision makers will come to, to, you know, engage on, on questions. Okay. Now, you're also the communications chair. What are your thoughts around the priority of trappers as individual trappers in their communities and regional and provincial bodies being more actively involved in public communications? Do you think that that's a priority, that's an importance, or should it just sort of be like not not be too visible, but just visible enough? Like, what are, you, what are your thoughts around I don't want them to be unattainable. Like the, the regional biologists and the wildlife management and all those groups, I have really great working relationships. Like, I haven't actually come across any relationships that have been forced. Um, so for me, it's, it's significantly easier. But I know there are some areas where they are really challenged, where the communication lines just don't exist. And that's where we could really come in and help. And we can help bridge those gaps and we can help to make sure that we're pushing forward and, and helping to fight with you on your causes, no matter what it is, whether it's a licensing issue, a permitting issue, or exactly what. It's something that we can support with. And if it's not something that we at the committee level can support with, then it's something that I'm very happy to bring forward up to the board and make the presentation and have the board support on it as well. There's a lot of different challenges that we as trappers do face, and it changes from region to region. 
And it's not even so much as the forward-facing media or the forward-facing information as it is trying to get our own information back from the regional groups. So whether that's the COs, whether that is your, your you know, regional biologists, and the answer that I might get might be different than what you would get across the different regions too. So it's, it's a huge struggle and a huge challenge that way, but we're here to support and we're here to help bridge those those lines and try to get a little bit more of, you know, inline messaging across the province. And that's kind of the goal of what to do. It's information sharing in and information sharing out. And then, of course, making sure we keep the memberships up to date with all of our stuff that we do as well. Yeah. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> what what are your thoughts around, like, engagement with the public? Like, just say, if I'm a trapper on my trap line, is that something that I should be in my community? Should I be talking to groups to say, I'm a trapper, this is what I do, this is who I am? Um, school groups, should I be on community business board? Should I be sponsoring baseball, hockey jerseys? Like, what What are your thoughts? Kind Because I'm sure you probably, you know... A, are aware, like we talked at the beginning of the show, there are quite a number of trappers in the province that it's like, I trap, leave me alone. I just want to go in the woods and do my thing, right? And we're kind of in that new age where where we might just want to like pull the curtains closed and just say, leave me alone, let me do my thing, where the rest of the world is pulling the court curtains open going, hey, what is it that you're doing in here? We We want to judge. We want to know what you're up to. And it's like, do should we get more involved in getting involved with our communities and and being proud and saying this is what trappers do or should we try to keep it more on the low key i am i am probably the polar opposite from a good percentage of what our trappers are a lot of them are very much keep it to yourself i am the one that's out there with the pom-pom saying come talk to me about trapping let me tell you what i do come up to me at the trade shows I will talk your ear off, but it's not just the trade shows that are geared for hunting. Um, through our wildlife control, we do trade shows at like the city of Kelowna um, when they have their vendor fairs. So you've got all the guys out there with their lawn companies and, you know, trying to make everything beautiful. And then there's us in the corner and I'm the one that's drawing people in saying, come talk to me about trapping. Let me tell you what we can do for you in an urban environment. Let me tell you what kind of education that we do. I will stand there and talk your ear off about prevention ex and exclusion. And everybody looks at me and they're, they're like, oh, okay. So again, as a trapper, you're not just out there. I, I'm so tired of being, of the perception that, you know, and I'm going to use it again. We are not just bunny killers. In fact, they're not even on our species list. So no, they're not. The we're bunnies not aren't going, a fur bear. <laughs> no. So we're not out there to cause harm or cause damage or anything like that. But it's also about how we want to be portrayed. And for me, I want to be the person that is helpful, that does that is able to provide that extra little bit of education, but that I'm approachable. So when you leave, you don't go, oh man, she was overbearing. I want to be able to say, oh, I got a question from you. 
Let me answer your question. It'll take that extra time to follow up on that. You want to have conversations? Let's go have conversations. I'll walk and talk with you and point out everything. Everything that I see that you may not notice. And it's those opportunities that are going to make the difference. And it's once we manage to get the whole perception of trapping out of that you know, oh, we're only out in the winter and we're only skulking and we're only doing this into no, we're actually, again, it's conservation, it's management, it's ethics. It's looking at an entire ecosystem. It's working with all of our partners that we're actually going to get that perception changed. Mm. No, so, that's, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, I know for me personally, which is why we love talking about trapping on on the yep. podcast is because I'll, there's a lot of non-trappers will listen to the podcast yep. right and they'll learn some things and they'll hear your voice and the way you speak and stuff and they'll develop a um you know a perception around you as a trapper and 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 that goes a long ways and i always think we would never know this but i always believe one of the greatest things we can ever contribute to the future of trapping is somewhere out there there's a conversation where somebody that's not a trapper is talking to somebody that's not a trapper and goes no 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 wait a minute i don't think you're right with what you're saying i know a person or i met a person that was a trapper and she was not like that this is what she told me this is what they do with traps da 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 da, da. and you'll never know that but you know through that contact that person's actually you know um, defending or putting up a logical argument to somebody. And, and I think that's a plus for, for trapping. And I think we just got to be in touch with more people and know that that's going to happen more. So I totally agree. And you know, the way that everything's going now within the organization, we've got an amazing group that will have those conversations with pretty much everybody. And that's one thing I really appreciate, especially the group of instructors, you know, my colleagues, the groups that I've had mentoring me for the past three, four years has been incredible because again, we all share that same message and we all share that same passion. We all do it in our very own ways. And I think it's amazing. No, that's great. Holly, thanks so much for all your inspirational words, your passion, everything that you're doing for trapping and everything that you're still going to do in the future as, as an instructor. And um, I'm sure you're probably planning out courses, you know, and filling up classes. Are you going to just be exclusively in like the Vernon area with your instruction? No, I don't, I don't think so. Um, I'm not against traveling. I actually was up, um, my last mentorship class I did was actually out your way. So that was a lot of fun for me before I took my actual certification class. Um, so no, I'm definitely not against, you know, have truck will travel, which is kind of nice for me, but it all just comes down to, odd places that I haven't been into the province yet because that's what's really taken me out of out of Vernon is being able to go and teach the classes and do things so I'm excited mm. to see where it's going to take me in the future I'd love to get up north and have some more remote style classes versus you know the suburban areas which would be nice for me well that would be that would be exciting there's nothing better than one of those classes where you're sitting in a log cabin with a big window and you're talking about and somebody goes 
there's a lynx walking across yeah. the field outside, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then you're like, okay, for your homework assignment tomorrow. Yes, right. <laughs> um, well, I know there's, uh, Curtis has got quite a group of friends here in the Cranbrook area that have been in the queue for the last couple of years. I think there's a yeah. tremendous amount of interest in in folks his age. So if you ever wanted to come out to the Kootenai area, um, yeah. let me know and we'll do everything we can to get a... Uh, uh, a list together for you of uh, expressions of interest and do our Fantastic. best to find you some find you a space to work in and all that sort of stuff but I appreciate that and I've been working closely with one of our other instructors who I know has been out there for a few courses as well so you're going to start to see some more students go through in the region which you know makes me happy because there's been gaps across the province that you know are starting to be addressed which is something that I'm really pleased to see no, that's awesome, and I think that was a huge step getting another instructor in the province with yourself. And and uh, yeah, once again, congratulations, and Thank thanks you. for taking the time to come on the show. This was no, this I was appreciate great. this. I I really appreciate this. Thank you. No, and uh, we look forward to uh, having you on again, and probably having having you back when you are the president of the BC Trappers Association. And <laughs> got a couple then, years before that, guys. Then, Come on uh, now. Well, no, that's uh that that'll that'll happen. I, I can see I can see the path there and then we can talk about all the great changes that uh, we've seen since since this podcast. So I appreciate that. Thank you guys so very much for the opportunity and I do look forward to having that conversation in let's call it maybe two to four years. Okay. We'll we'll put three in the middle there then. <laughs> so who knows? I I I'm I'm betting there'll be a topic that'll come up before then where we can probably, oh, probably. get back together and talk about a specific topic. So For Tim's sure. been on the show a couple of times. The last mm -hmm. time was just recently about the interior um fisher conservation yeah. um that that issue. Um Doug uh, Chesson has been on from the, the new executive director of the Fur Institute. He's been mm -hmm. on our shows a couple of times. So um, it's great. I, I love, um, I love you know, connecting with people like yourself. So even if there's something come up where it's like we did this with Doug uh, in the wintertime and it was like there's some stories, hit the news. He didn't get quoted. So it was like, Doug, just come on the podcast <laughs> and tell us what you think is going on with this bobcat that was in Calgary and there was some things like that. So he's like, yep, absolutely. So that's, uh, this platform's always available for you for, for those things. If you want to just bring us up and say, Mark and Curtis, I need to come on to talk about this thing that's out there right now. And I need to tell the truth about what's going on. So we're, we're no, here for I that. I totally appreciate that. And I've, I've listened to past ones that you've had and no, very well done. So good. Well, appreciate it. It's part part of our learning process as well. Fantastic. Curtis, take it away. Right on. The Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, BC. As always, give them a call. Maybe not call them. That's that's kind of a little impersonal. Bring them a coffee. Stop in and say, hey, thanks for supporting the boys over at Hunter Conservationist. We love the show. They always talk about you on the show. And we're still waiting for all those custom vehicle wraps, probably 60 or 70 of them now at this point that are back ordered to be <laughs> custom made for the show. Uh, yeah, as always, thanks to Alpine for their continuing support of what we do here at the Hunter Conservationist. 
And we would like to invite you to join the hunter conservationist community and become a part of something bigger. Take your love of hunting, trapping, angling, and the way of life that goes with it to the next level. Support the future of hunting in Canada with us and get exclusive access to podcast episodes and content not available anywhere else. With your subscription, you'll be part of a growing community of like-minded hunters, anglers, and conservationists who are passionate about making a difference in our way of life. You can access this community at patreon.com slash thehunterconservationist. What do we got now? We got almost 40 episodes of The Underground? Underground? Yeah, it's like 46 or 47, something like that. They they stack up pretty quick. Yeah. So check it out, folks. No, love, uh, love for you to join us on the underground as well. Holly Wise, Vice President, Communications Chair, BC Trappers Association. Look forward to all the great things that you're going to do and the great lives that you're going to touch uh, as an instructor in both trapping and in hunter training course. Thanks. Thank you, guys. All right, everybody. We will see you in the next episode. Bye.